Hello, everyone. Um, hope you are doing well and hope you and your families are doing great and staying safe. Um, welcome to episode one of Living in the Light, the, my new podcast, and I'm very excited to uh, g- actually get it started, you know. Yeah, so if you didn't see the trailer, um, just kind of wanted to give a brief, again, a brief outline of what the intentions are of the podcast is. So the intention is is to be able to provide both educational, informative, but also engaging things, uh, engaging insight about uh, controversial topics um, and, you know, hot button issues in um, today's world and be able to unpack some of the layers behind them and weigh in on just the gravity behind them, but ultimately be able to provide a uh, a bit of a bit of an analysis and ultimately a response to how we as Christians should be able to respond to them and what 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 our ideal um, um, you know like I said response to it should be and yeah it's going to be a very family friendly podcast this is going to be low-key it's not going to be too you know super edgy anything we if if we say anything that is quote-unquote offensive it's it's not intend intended to be it's primarily just facts so <laughs> that's primarily just what it is um yeah but it's a very low key family friendly podcast um and yeah i was ta- thinking about you know what topic we should talk about first cuz there's a lot of things we could talk about um and i was thinking maybe we should just do a little bit more of a bipartisan issue, more of something that a lot of both sides of the aisle can have some sort of agreement on and ultimately, you know, believe that there is a lot of problems with it. But I was like, nope, we're just going to dive right into it. We're just going to start off with quote-unquote a banger. So much of a banger, in fact, (laughs) we actually had to divide the first episode into two parts so episode one and two is going to be part one and two and if you look at the description yes we are going to be talking about critical theory a lot of you may be thinking you mean critical race theory no critical theory critical theory is an accompaniment a large umbrella that encapsulates pretty much every sort of ism and phobia you can think about here and why talk about that at all? Well, critical theory and a lot of its schools of thought have really been influencing modern day society in general. I mean, a lot of, you know, isms, racism, sexism, misogyny, whatever, or a lot of things like feminism, socialism, transgenderism, and a lot of also like buzzwords like microaggression, heteronormativity, um, my, you know, stuff like that, and social justice warriors, wokeness, all of that can be derived from the school of thought of ultimately critical theory. And not only that, a lot of churches and Christian circles are really having their heads in the sand just about how, just how big and how much weight there is behind these issues, to the point where some churches are even accepting some of the talking points behind it. A lot of progressive Christianity and a lot of progressive churches are very much, you know, 
falling into falling for the uh bait and switch you know the wolf in sheep's clothing aspect of it so and because of that we need to actually talk about not just what this issue is but the history behind it because if you look at the history of it you realize it's dare i say a very a very sus history for lack of better terms so we're just going to dive right into it. We're just going to talk about where critical theory came from, what its roots are, and then how we as believers should respond. And before we dive right in, we will not talk about more of the critical theory of today. That'll be for next episode. Like I said, that's there was like so much that I wanted to talk about that I didn't want to make this like a two-hour podcast because let's be honest if I did most people would get bored by the one hour mark so want to you know not waste people's time and do that so without further ado let's dive right into it so critical theory actually is derived from Marxism and me just simply saying that is enough for a lot of people to roll their eyes and be like, uh, okay, boomer, Marxism, what are you, living in the, the 1960s, 50s? What, really? You're talking about Marxism? Don't you mean just liberal, liberal, woke capital or stuff like that? No, no, it's, Marxism, is, their influences are still so heavily prevalent today, and yeah, so that's where critical theory ultimately gets its roots from. So if you don't know, Marxism comes from the infamous figurehead Karl Marx. Karl Marx is the uh, famous figurehead behind Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto. And um, just to emphasize, he was not a Christian in any capacity, despite the fact that some historical um, background does suggest that he— does suggest that he was baptized into the Lutheran Church. He ultimately was not a Christian. He believed and said that Christianity and pretty much all religion was an epitome for the masses to keep people poor and keep people pacified so they wouldn't rise up against the capitalist regime, pretty much. So with that... We can pretty much make that clear that Karl Marx was, you know, not a fan of Christianity in any capacity. So, so we also need to know that Marxism is, while a lot of it is very much economically based, it really is much more cultural than it is. And even if it's more orthodox roots back in the late 19th century, it is very much cultural based. So, for those of you who do not know what Marxism is, it basically divides two society into two groups. You have the bourgeoisie, which is the wealthy people. It's the wealthy, it's the people living in the lap of luxury, and then there's the proletariats. I can't pronounce that. I'm sometimes horrible at English, but it's the haves and the have-nots. It's the rich versus the poor. That's pretty much what it is. And Karl Marx, believing that, he decided that we need to change that and overthrow. Well, how do you do that? Well, then he divided society into two other sections, the base and the superstructure. He came to the conclusion that if we really wanted to change society, we would have to change the culture of it. Because 
so many Western cultures are ingrained in this very wealthy, luxurious idea of private ownership derived to the point where it's considered in um, all of its laws and all of its institutions. So if we want to change that, we have to change the culture here. So he divided it into the base. The base is the economic side. It's the means of production, the means of producing all the materialism. And then there's the superstructure. That's everything else. That's culture. That's art, family, tradition, hierarchy, order, stuff like that. So he said, if we need to change the superstructure, we have to quote unquote, seize the means of production, take it, and then ultimately, um, we will then change the superstructure. And ultimately, we will achieve our goal of overthrowing the capitalist pigs and ultimately, you know, having our stateless, godless society, pretty much, that we want this egalitarianism where, you know, everything is shared. And that's what they want. They want a society where there is no ownership. You own nothing, and you will be happy. <laughs> that's literally what they're saying here. In an ideal Marxist egalitarian society, the land, it, let's say you have some land, and in an ideal society, everything is shared. In that ideal society, everything is shared. So, you so you may own it, but other people have the right to just come onto your land and do ideally whatever they want with it. Which is, from a basic logical standpoint, that cannot work because you have conflict of interest. But it's ultimately very sinister because it suggests that anything you own, it can be t just as easily taken away from you simply because some person wants to achieve it and it de it's derived from the egalitarian idea of each according to his own ability to each according to his own need which sounds good on paper but when it's put into practice it's really really not good and like i said it promotes a lot of selfishness it promotes a lot of ideally a lot of this this is mine i'm entitled to it simply because you know you should be generous and that's honest, and that's just roughly, kind of roughly speaking, what it is. That's just a broad brush of what an ideal Marxist society would look like. But if you look further into it, past the layers of economic rhetoric, we will find that the main goal was to uproot all the pillars that all healthy tribes and societies were based off of. Things like family, religion, culture. All of this was to be completely eradicated. That's why if you look in Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, while you look into it, the four main points include the abolition of family, the abolition of nation and nationality, the abolition of religion, and the abolition of private ownership. They couldn't make it more clear of what their intentions are. And not only that, they ultimately also wanted to create a disconnect from the past and an abolition of the truth. And that can be very seen in, you know, our world today where constant, you know, you know, a lot of people are not very, you know, ideal to the truth. That's why I named my podcast, a little side tangent, that's why I named my, my, my podcast Living in the Light, because what happens when you have a society that is completely diametrically opposed to the truth in any capacity? You want to muddy the waters, you want to live in the darkness, and when light comes in, you snuff out the light. 
But we as Christians, we are called to live as children of light. We are called to walk in the light of the Lord. And I just just wanted to, you know, just emphasize that here. And because that's ultimately the goal of Marxism is the abolition of all eternal truths. And that's why, you know, so many people are just have such a disconnect from their history is because of this influence. And we'll get to that point later. But yeah, so abolition of family, nationality, religion, private ownership. They couldn't make it more clear. There's no hiding their true motivations despite the countless obfuscations of economic jargon and despite all the uh, obfuscations from people who are like, no, 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 Marxism is not that big of a threat. You're just being conspiratorical. It's liberalism. No, no, it's stop. Stop trying to justify their their motivations, guys. They, they, they couldn't be more clear about what they want. And Karl Marx had no no intentions on freeing the workers. His intention was to use a bait and switch and to ultimately create a an army of godless, soulless NPCs devoid of any identity, devoid of any any order devoid of any respect for God and ultimately use that as an army to you know destroy and uproot all the pillars here we and we've seen this before in history look back at the French Revolution we've seen what has happened he what's happened in the past and Karl Marx wanted to take that to the nth degree pretty much here and it was pretty much a wolf in sheep's clothing mindset here it's we are here to free you when actually we want to create a much more godless authoritarian state that is derived of everything that makes a healthy society function here. And we then saw it in history. It worked. In the USSR, that's what happened with Lenin and Stalin. What happens once the Bolsheviks took the power? Took power? They killed a bunch of people. Stalin is probably responsible for a, a lot of a lot of a much more graphic and horrid genocide here and you know there there it there was a lot more communist revolutions you know in the 19th and 18th century all over europe but besides russia most of them pretty much failed most of them were complete in other failures they were not able to completely you know overthrow the government overthrow the capitalist pigs and <laughs> whatever but but yeah that's that's just that's just that's just kind of we just have to be honest about just what their intentions are we we, we can't hide what what their true motive the motivations are honestly yeah and this isn't to say that like communism isn't like a threat is really a threat today it really isn't to be quite honest i mean what like country out there is communist besides like china and cuba i mean i guess vietnam but there's really really no other country that's really communist here but marxism and its ideologies and its influence has been so influential today here it's been influential in like so much of our politics and our rhetoric to the point where it's more influential than most people realized but yeah but how did it become so influential well it actually became more influential because of two groups here. Um, 
Antonio Grimsky and the Frankfurt schools here. Because after the communist revolutions, you know, in the tw early 20th century all over Europe failed, many Marxists were left puzzling, did Karl Marx lie to us? Well, did, did, did his ideology not work? Like, what went wrong? So these two big players, Antonio Grimsky and Fra the Frankfurt schools, were set out to answer this question here. And what are those answers? Um, we'll get to those in a second. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll get back to, to you in a sec. Welcome back to Living in the Light. Uh, so where were we? All right. So, yeah, we had two prominent figures enter into the stage after the failure of the communist revolutions that were taking place in the early 20th and late 19th century. And those were Antonio Grimsky and the Frankfurt Schools. So let's start off with Antonio Grimsky here. Um Antonio Grimsky was actually the leader, one of the predominant leaders in um, the Communist Party within Italy at the time here. And he was pretty much put into jail and left there to rot by uh, Mussolini at the time here. Because Mussolini was, dare I say, a little bit paranoid about uh, the rise of communism within Italy and within across Europe here. And during um, Grimsky's time to time in jail, he had a lot of time to reflect about why communism was failing in the West, why Marxism was failing in the West, and ultimately why wasn't this working despite the fact that it seemed like it could never fail, it could never fail. Well, he ended up coming to uh, this conclusion here. He discovered that Western nations are actually very much comfortable with um, their with their um, uh, lifestyles, pretty much. Their materialistic lifestyles. All their needs were met, pretty much, here. And even if there was this perceived notation of a lot of economic inequality within the West, they were still very comfortable with it. I mean— the United States had an economic depression, the worst in its history, to the point where like 30% of the population was unemployed, and yet that wasn't even enough to cause the lower class to rise up against the bourgeoisie. That wasn't even enough here. So he ended up discovering that because of the large prevalent middle class populations and because the majority of Western societies were still having their pillars of healthy – of help of what a healthy tribe is based off of intact, he ended up discovering that it would only be possible for a revolution to take place if there was a large poverty class. But no, no one in their right mind is going to enter into this uh, – ridiculous fantastical revolution 
if that means giving up their comfortable lifestyles here. So he ended up coming down to two points. Marxist revolutions couldn't work due to the absence of a rich versus poor class, or a very prevalent one to be exact, and saw that because, you know, this materialistic mindset was ingrained so much into not just the economy, but ultimately into the cultural institutions of the West, he came to the conclusion that in order to overthrow the economic side of it and ultimately then get to the political side, you would have to actually change the culture here. And you would it would be more of a bit of a flip of what Marx originally intended here. You take over the economic side, you then change the culture here. He said, well, um, Grimsky said, nope, you gotta take over the culture, you you colonize the culture, and then you change the econo economy and the political sphere. And he ended up discovering that violence and sheer intimidation political force wouldn't work. It would be effective in a short term, but ultimately most people wouldn't enjoy it here. When you have a bunch of revolutionaries out there burning down your city in the name of overthrowing the capitalism and overthrowing the wealthy class, a lot of people aren't going to immediately jump onto your side here because they're like, you're burning down our cities, you're burning down our, our, our lifestyle here, so we're not going to support you. So he instead proposed a more of a subtle approach. It would later be coined by one of his uh, followers, Rudy Dutsky, a long march through the institutions here, where he would, um, where there would be this long, slow infiltration of every single institution here. Every single institution would be infiltrated slowly and surely throughout history to the point where once, once, um, once they finally have pretty much gotten their hands on every single institution, they can finally implement this uh, Marxist agenda here. Here, And through that, um, I actually want to kind of bring up a quote here that is from Grimsky. And he said this, In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via the infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. So that was pretty much his ideology and his mindset that he proposed here. He couldn't be more obvious or blunt. If you want to completely change the economy of a country and ultimately change the politics you got to change the culture and that's where we get the phrase cultural marxism from and that's um why it seems like every single institution right now is completely against christian values why does it seem like every single mass corporate conglomerate every single news media outlet besides like Fox, but even then, Fox is not really pro-Christian, to be quite honest, or even things like Breitbart. Why does it seem like every single art art institute, every single piece of cinema is pro openly promoting anti-Christian values? Why does it seem like every single mass institution is diametrically proposed to not just Christianity, but everything that is rooted in tradition and, and good family values why well that's because for the past hundred years 
Every single institute has been embracing this long march through the institutions that Grimsky proposed for the past hundred years. Every single institution has been slowly colonized because of Grimsky. Now, Grimsky wasn't the one that led the long march through the institutions here, but he was the one that proposed it. The ones that more led the long march through it were what? That's where the Frankfurt School comes in. So the Frankfurt School was this group of Marxist thinkers, philosophers, socialists who founded this school of thought in Frankfurt, Germany around 1923 here. And they wanted to discover the same question or not discover, answer the same question that um, Grimsky was trying to ask is why did Marxism and communism fail in the West here? And now they weren't the ones that found the answer here, but they ultimately took the answer from Grimsky and influenced it a lot. And a little bit of a fun fact, their name originally was the Institute for Social Research, which is actually very much more optical than what their original name was going to be. Can you guess what their original name was going to be? The Institute for Marxism. <laughs> it, it's like they're openly honest. They, they're openly masked off about their intentions here. And so they sent – anyway, they sent uh, – they uh, spent the next few years trying to answer that question here, establishing these schools of thought. They ended up fleeing um, Germany in uh, – in 1935 to New York at Columbia University once the Nazi regime took power because they were like, well, obviously we don't want to be here, so we're just going to leave. And and they had a lot, a lot of um, influences here. And um, ultimately, they, their new Marxist ideology, this idea of cultural Marxism, needed to come up with a new form of oppression. And they said that um, this new form of oppression couldn't be economic. It had to be cultural here. So with that, they ended up discovering that in order to – that we need to come up with, like I said, come up with this new form of oppression, and it's cultural here. And this is where um, critical theory comes into play. Critical theory was actually founded by a guy of the name of Max Horkheimer, and he essentially – his intention with starting the school of thought of critical theory was to question the norms of society. So critical theory is – simply just questioning the norms of society and the traditions of society, essentially questioning the status quo there and why it's there. And critical theory did have its roots in Marxism, pretty much, especially cultural Marxism. That's where it had its roots here. But it also did have a lot of influences from other thoughts and other pieces of philosophy People like uh, Sigmund Freud actually had a lot of influence um, within critical theory here. But the end goal of critical theory was actually the establishment of once we criticize these norms and figure out what they are, we have the end goal of 
ending them and forcing a change into a new direction. And that direction is primarily Marxism, egalitarian vision. And it essentially says that all society must be to challenge. No matter how good it is, no matter how moral it is, every single aspect of the society needs to be challenged. Everything. You believe in, yeah, so you believe in um, marriages between a man and a woman. That's the status quo. That needs to be challenged. You believe in um, a biblical view of marriage. That needs to be challenged. You believe anything good the Founding Fathers say, that needs to be challenged. Every single aspect needed to be challenged and ultimately taken over and destroyed with something new. And because of this, critical theory is this giant umbrella that encompasses every sort of oppression here. And cultural Marxism, like I said, says that the new form of oppression is cultural base. And there's actually all these groups and these every single aspects of culture here that are being oppressed. So white people are oppressing minorities. Men are oppressing women. Straight people are oppressing homosexuals. Essentially, everyone is being oppressed in some sort of capacity with the exception of white straight Christian males. And essentially, the wealthy upper class was replaced with the white, straight, Christian male patriarchy. That's essentially what culture Marxism did. It replaced it with, with this new cultural oppressive class here. And so the cultural Marxist, founded by Grimsky and revamped by critical theorists at the Frankfurt schools, re-engineered a new revolutionary class of marginalized NPCs and bug people to replace the materially satisfied workers and ultimately overthrow the white straight male patriarchy, despite the fact that despite the fact that it really wasn't doing that much harm at the time here. And in short, critical theory is where we are today. Because after World War II ended, a lot of the critical theorists took their work, took a lot of their writings here. There's so many writings here that you can honestly write books, like have books about how much crap there is in there, to be quite honest. Um, and they took their writings global. They took A lot of their writings actually went to the UN in the 1950s and 60s, and if you look through history, you might notice that there that this um, rampant onslaught of far liberalism becomes more prevalent. Like in the 1960s, you have the sexual revolution, and um, then of course you know you have a lot of the you know the immigrant rights, our human rights stuff in the 1960s with the Immigration Act of 1965 being enacted. And then, of course, you have Bill Clinton's Immigration Act in the 1990s. And then you have the acceptance of gay marriage to today and the acceptance of transgenderism. And all in short, all of that was derived from the papers of critical theorists who said that they had good intentions of giving marginalized group people a voice in a society when in reality they actually wanted to destroy the uproots of tradition, family, and ultimately God and create this godless, stateless society here. And that's where we are today. 
All this liberal jargon of microaggression, toxic masculinity, heteronormativity. An unborn child is just a fetus in just a clump of cells. All white people are inherently racist. You get the picture. That's where we all are today here with all this critical theory, jargon, and nonsense. That's where it is. That's where we are today here. But you may ask yourself, why does this even matter? Why does this matter? I mean, there's always been crap like this. Well, it matters in this. The church is highly, highly susceptible to being lenient towards this. A lot of, for example, in the Southern Baptist community, there has been a bit of a liberal drift, actually. There's been um, a lot of acceptance of homosexuality here. There's actually, which you may be like, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. They they will openly say they're, they're, for, they're for marriage. For, or for a biblical view of marriage. But there was actually um, the one of the former presidents, his son, who's an open homosexual, he actually retweeted a, a sermon by his son um, and said, and said this, is a, this is truly a great sermon because it's truly representative of the gospel and stuff like that here. So with that said, the church is becoming more susceptible to it and ultimately more lenient and tolerant. And they really don't see Marxism and critical theory as a threat when in reality, for the past hundred years, the reason why we have such anti-Christian institutions is because of this. Yeah, that's where we are today. And so many Christians are just like, it's not that big of a threat. It's not that big of a deal. It is. We can't be blind to the truth. We can't not be afraid of admitting the, admitting the reality of it. And we can't, you know, say that the intentions of critical theory are good when their intentions are rooted in Marxism, a clearly anti-Christian ideology that was anti-Christian from the beginning here. So how do we as Christians respond? Well, We'll get to that in a second, but before that, we're going to take a quick break here. Andy the Bat. Welcome back to Living in the Light here. Um, in um, our last section, how we as believers should respond to these perverse ideologies and infiltrating every single aspect of our society, I actually want to um, offer you a quote from Karl Marx himself. And this comes from one of his papers. Uh, it's a criticism of the Hegelian philosophy of right. And it says, the first requisite of the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. I just wanted to propose that there, again, just to emphasize, these ideologies, no matter how good they may have seemed with their intentions here, 
Marxism, critical theory, no matter how good they may have seen from the beginning, they always had their roots in the ultimate goal of abolishing religion and ultimately abolishing Christianity and God from society here. That was their ultimate goal from the beginning here. So we as Christians can, you know, obfuscate, you know, we can be like, oh, it's it's not that big of a deal. The past is in the past. But this is why you need to read history. Ultimately, this is why you need to understand history and understand where ideologies come from here. And this is my intention of the podcast so many Christians do not understand not just the definitions of all these isms and all these all these you know hot button issues but don't even understand where they came from you truly understand something more the more when you know when where it comes from because you understand its intentions you understand its its uh its uh, mannerisms so that's that's why I started this in the in the first place was because I see so many Christians here being naive to this and I just want want to just give again paint a broad brush here because to be quite honest I didn't I could have dived in so much more into the history about it because there's so much I didn't even dive into a stuff with like the French Revolution or with Lenin and um with uh with a lot of uh, stuff in regards to the introduction of the UN in the 1940s and the first anti-racist papers that were implemented there and stuff like that. I didn't even dive into any of that here. My intention was more just to offer a very simple, in layman's terms, introduction to this. But yeah. Ultimately, Marxism is incompatible with Christianity in any capacity. It is. A lot of people, especially a lot of very, very far-left progressive Christians, like to somehow insinuate that Jesus was the Karl Marx of the, of the first century, which is ridiculous. He was like, Jesus was here to implement the, this, you know, revolutionary idea of overthrowing the oppressive Pharisee, Pharisee you know, ruling class, when... That's not what Jesus' intentions were at all. Jesus' intentions were to save the world, were, not, were to come into the world and redeem sinners through his sacrifice at the cross here. That was his intention. When we as believers ultimately try to put Jesus into this box of ideology here, when we try to put Jesus into this box and use it as a means to justify our political, um, our political um, ideology, we're we're doing Christianity and ultimately Jesus a disservice here. Our politics really shouldn't come before Christ. Our politics should ultimately come as a result of where our truth is based in, which our truth is based in the truth of the word and ultimately based in what we um, what we believe in Christ here. So, yeah. And ultimately, Marxism endorses a lot of anti-Christian values, and not just like stuff like, you know, the abolition of religion and family, but it also endorses a lot of things like envy, 
It says that you can be envious of people, and that's okay. You can covet as much as you want. You can take as much as you want. Because in an ideal Marxist society, you can take anything you want because everything is shared, despite the fact that it doesn't belong to you. And it endorses resentment and endorses a lot of hatred against certain people. And that's ultimately why I'm also believe that critical theory is anti-christian because critical theory ultimately endorses resentment against this patriarch because it insinuates that they are just repressive that or oppressive here and it marxism endorses collective guilt there's actually a verse from ezekiel eighteen twenty that i want to bring up that says the one who sins is the one who will die the child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. And that's what Marxism and critical theory are endorsing. They're endorsing this idea of a collective guilt against this. Marxism, you know, initially it was like the collective guilt of everyone who is wealthy. And then cultural Marxism says everyone who was involved in this, you know, white straight male patriarch. And, you know, we as believers, we ultimately cannot, you know, we cannot support that in any capacity here. We have to address it for what it is. It is a horrid, hateful ideology here that is against Christ. It is against the Christ in any capacity and seeks to undermine it. And despite the fact that a lot of progressive Christians will try to have their cake and eat it too, essentially be like, well, I don't support Marxism, but we can, you know, have this, you know, stand up for justice and whatever. We can't use Christianity as a means to just achieve this ideology. A lot of people, take social justice, for example, a lot of people will support Christianity or progressive Christianity because as a means to achieve social justice, which again is not why we should support Christianity. We should support and ultimately believe in Christ because he is the one that will save us and redeem us from the curse of the law and redeem us from our sins here. And ultimately come back to cleanse the world of all sin. We cannot support Christianity as a means to achieve this Marxian, ridiculous, egalitarian fantasy here. We are doing Christianity and ultimately Christ a disservice when we do that here. And it goes for the right as well. A lot of people on the right will support Christ as a means to achieve, you know, as a means to achieve, you know, these, these, these right, these, um, right-wing ideologies or whatever but it's like that's that's not nearly as prevalent from what i've seen here and you may be like oh you're just being biased because you're more conservative i'm like i'm really not but i will i will call out people on both sides but i mean i'm, I'm, I'm sorry but i think far liberalism and critical theory marxism are a much greater threat in today's world than conservative christian nationalist i i i i i like tim keller but tim keller was like said that christian nationality is christian nationalism is a huge diametrical threat to our society and i'm just like is it really no i don't see it if anything i see it as not a threat at all 
I really don't. And that's just me. Just because I have the mic doesn't mean I'm right. I, I want to emphasize that just because I have the mic doesn't mean that I'm right here. I will. There will be times where I say things that they may not be, be correct here. But again, I just don't see it as really the greatest threat to our quote-unquote democracy. I don't really see it as that big of a threat here. Regardless, though, we as Christians cannot simply uh, support and value Christianity because it may produce an ideal political or social situation. We must ultimately cr value Christ because he is our Savior. He is the Alpha and Omega and the one that will bring true justice to our world here. And we as Christians, we cannot live in fear of the rapid onslaught of far liberalism and, and ultimately secular, secularism that is overtaking our current society. However, we cannot be passive to this. We cannot be passive to, to how bad the situation is. I'm going to be honest. The situation is pretty bad here. I mean, the persecution against, you know— groups within our circle is very 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 prevalent the persecution here you know it may not be like isis al-qaeda style persecution where we're killed but it's like it's a type of persecution where we're have we're losing our jobs we're having our bank accounts shut down we're losing our ability to buy homes our children are getting bullied and harassed in school by both peers and teachers the persecution is very prevalent, and we cannot be passive and blind to the persecution here. And I'm not doing this the fear monger. I'm simply doing this as this is just how it is. This is where we are at as a result of the huge, heavy influence of Marxism and the colonization of cultural Marxism within every single institution of our society that was predestined a hundred years ago. But we have to understand that all forms of oppression are ultimately going to be washed away by Christ here. And he ultimately has all authority both on heaven and earth. And that doesn't mean that we can't be ignorant, and be not, but we also can't be nihilistic and be like, well, let's throw in the towel. The bad guys have taken over. We might as well just go live in the woods and not worry about it. No. We as Christians need to be proactive in this. And that's, again, why I started this podcast. As a result of saying we need to be proactive and ultimately not have our heads in the sand of just how big these issues are here. We must plan accordingly, and we ultimately must spread the truth of the gospel here because Christ is ultimately the ultimate truth. Living in the truth means living in Christ. Living in truth means living in Christ. Living in truth does not mean living in the ideology of, you know, Trumpism or stuff like that. <laughs> that isn't like a diss against Trump or anything, but um, living in the truth means living in Christ. It means reading our Bibles and staying firm in the Word, you know. We must have the word on our hearts at all times here. If we are to walk as children of light, we must, must understand the truth of the gospel and must also understand the truth of why 
all why these ideologies, these isms, are ultimately against our values and what we believe as Christians here. And with that said, I just wanted to say, um, if you disagree with me, I'm okay with that. My goal here was to spark conversation, and my goal here is to hopefully be informative and also engage in here because you know a lot of when you hear this in history class it's very boring it's very cut and dry here and um, hopefully this was a bit more engaging a bit more simple and you learned more than in your AP U.S. history class you probably honestly could more learn more about history um, from from the from other sources than in your AP US history class. Oh man, but yeah. Yeah, but that's uh that's 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 just one what I wanted to do here. Um thank you guys so much for tuning in and I again I hope you guys are doing well. Hope your families are staying safe and healthy. Um this is part one of two. Part two, um, we will get more into the critical theory aspect because I kind of just brush that a little bit more, but we will dive more into the modern-day critical theory stuff and the more contemporal side of it. That's, 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 that's just a way to describe more modern-day critical theory. We'll dive more into that in the next podcast here, um, part two, and... Yes. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Again, stay safe, stay healthy. Um, don't let fear cloud your mind. Understand that we will make it. We will make it ultimately. It will get better. It may not seem like it, but it will. And we can have assurance in knowing that if God is for us, then who is against us? All right. I love you all and see you later.